Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big money at LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 087 237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Wednesday morning, the 30th of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. As you know, the planned increases on motorway tolls due to come into effect from the 1st of January has been deferred for six months. What this means now is that while motorists won't have to pay extra going through tolls, all of us will pay the toll operators for the extra revenue that they would have raised through those increases. Now, this means that we will give them 12.5 million euro. The deferral was expected to cost them, or at least the government will compensate them that 12.5 million on our behalf. That money will not come from cuts to the road budget, the Maidstone's budget, because it's important you keep maintaining the roads. It's more cheaper that way rather than coming back later. Or nor will it be taken out from the public transport budget, which particularly for rural Ireland is increasing significantly. Grown, take for example the local link rural transport services, if I can give that as one example, where there's been a major expansion. The budget on that has gone from some 12 million in 2016 oh, to over 28 million this year. And we're not stopping there. I am very proud that we've introduced from Limerick County into Limerick City, from Galway, in, all over the country, we're starting to roll out the Connecting Ireland bus services, which provides, provides regular, including in West Cork, which provides regular 
return services that were not there in the past because we are there recognising we do have to make this change. Right, that's the Minister for Transport, Eamon Ryan. He was speaking to Sinn Féin Motion and let's speak uh, to Sinn Féin's spokesperson on transport because you wanted uh, the tolls to stay at the same price. Uh, now that uh, that has happened, uh, where do you want the money to come from? Well, it it looks like the money is going to come from the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform. Um, So within uh, savings elsewhere, I presume it's not entirely clear where it's going to come from. We gave a number of proposals in our alternative budget around how the government could raise uh, uh, significant sums in the region of of 25 million, 18 million. Um, The the figure they're they're pointing at is is 12.5 million. One of the examples we gave was there's an EV grant um, for for people who are buying EVs, and, and you can buy an EV of costing sixty thousand euros, and you'll get a five thousand euro grant. And what, what Sinn Fein says, if you can afford a car at sixty thousand euros, um, you, you, you know you shouldn't get the five thousand euros. So you don't you want to incentivise electric vehicles? No, no, we, we do. We, we believe uh, it's reasonable to ask people to. Um, to buy an EV under fifty thousand euros, you know, so you can buy. There's a very good range of, of EVs mm. uh, under fifty thousand euros, and and if you did that, um, you'd save in the region of of, of twenty five million euros. And and okay. we would also we so, would also so, argue. So then, when I guess to the sixty thousand bracket, you're not concerned if people opt to go diesel because there's a lot of reasons for opting to go diesel or petrol for that matter. Uh, very difficult to charge these things. Uh, you'll only get a couple of hundred miles. Uh, nearly as expensive to charge them apart from anything else. Uh, but you're happy to take away that incentive. So, so, so we would we would take that. We, the other thing that, that that we want to do in relation to it is we want to incentivise the second-hand EV market because the the, the, the big difficulty um, we have is, is that there aren't um, they're, they're not affordable. EVs aren't affordable for for the vast amount of, amount of people. And what you have as a result of it is. The vast majority of EVs that are bought are bought in urban areas where people have public transport beside them. So, yeah. so, so, so people who are actually dependent on their cars, who don't have alternatives, um, can switch to, to EVs. You know, so, so at this point in time, um, what we have argued, and and this is you know an option for government. But you were talking about getting the money uh, to compensate the toll operators by taking away that incentive to buy electric cars. Over over fifty thousand euros. So yeah. there's, there's, pl- there's plenty of cars. Okay. You know, it, it, it might. It might it I don't might think the government is going to do that. So it's, does that mean that when well, we well, get into the cold winter months uh, and people will be thing. and people will be looking for more uh, help with uh, their electricity bills and their heating bills, uh, that the minister for public expenditure expenditure will have less money no. because and, he's and had that, to give twelve and a half million euro to the toll operators and uh, for people for pensioners, let's say, who don't have cars. And another thing they could do is they could they could raise tax on on private jets. There's you know there are, are thousands of of private jets, mm, but they could do those things anyway, couldn't they? Well, they could do them, and, and yeah. they could they could raise. So 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 so. so, what, so but what what's hap- what happened yesterday was the government gave away twelve and a half million euro with all of Sinn Fein's support urging them to do that. Oh, absolutely, and and because we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis, and people who drive cars and drive trucks mm. and drive what about people drive, who don't drive cars and, and drive white vans? They, they're you know so 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 a couple of things in relation to this, and I, and, and I take the point, um, and and it's been said to me, um, so, so you're you're shifting the burden from yep. 
uh, these people that use the, these roads onto people who don't. But, but bear in mind, Michael, it's a statement of fact to say that everybody that uses the M50 on a daily basis, and particularly those who, who spend more uh, haulage companies, mm. are, subsi- are subsidising the whole national road network to the tune of 200 million euros a year. Okay. So it's the other way. It's well, you, the don't other way ha- you don't have to go through the M50 toll. You don't have to go through the M1 toll. You don't have to go through any toll. Uh, but there's nothing you can do if uh, the government has shortchanged you because it's paid for motorists to have the privilege of going through the tolls. But it's, it's hardly a, a privilege, Michael, now, in fairness, for people who are using, you know, getting up early in the morning, leaving Kells at six o'clock in the morning, travelling to, to North Wicklow, travelling mm. through two tolls on the M3, another tr- toll on the, yeah, well, on the M50. I remember before the M50 was built, and when it was built, it was a privilege until it became uh, a car park, and then they rebuilt it, uh, and that goes on. Uh, but there are always alternatives to tolls. Yeah, and, and 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 what is that? It's 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 Kilmoon Cross on a daily basis, yeah. you know. And 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 is is that what we're we're trying to encourage you? Like we build this road network. Um, I I believe that these PPP um, deals were a bad deal for the Irish taxpayer. They mm. pay significantly more in the long run for this state infrastructure. I believe the state should take it on. The state should should build and deliver it and, and own it at the at the end of it, not on these 45-year contracts that uh, uh, provide guaranteed income and guaranteed profit for these co- toll companies. What will happen in July? Yeah, we'll be back to uh, we'll be back to where we would have been on the first of January. So, what what we have said to government, and, and there's a couple of things, uh, uh, Michael, just I think are important. One is it's not entirely clear from listening to the TII at the Transport Committee that they will be in a position to deliver on this. Uh, um, government objective uh, to ensure that the, the, the fares don't increase. They, they, the government have known about these increases since as far back as early September. They did nothing about it until yesterday. Um, I think it's a coincidence that it came at a time of a Sinn Féin motion. It's a coincidence that it came at a time when they were announcing uh, uh, an increase to bankers' pay. Um, it's not entirely clear that it will be delivered by the 1st of January, but hopefully it, it, it will. Um, but all it does is defer this uh, situation and, and kick it down the road. So what we have said to government is get it done by the 1st of January. Um, and in the, the six months that followed, you need to look at how our roads are funded, how our tolls are acting as a perverse incentive to uh, get people to use other roads, to divert tra- traffic away from the, the toll roads and clogging up, uh, uh, clogging up towns and villages elsewhere to ensure that we have a, an efficient use of, of uh, our national road network that's entirely consistent with climate objectives, with, okay. uh, um, with also with, 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 with uh, uh, environmental and with, with transport objectives as well. Okay, uh, you're very worried about uh, cars on the road uh, as well, and you've been raising many concerns, different concerns uh, about uh, the NCT, the delay in getting a test, and indeed those uh, who are testing the cars. It's an issue that you raised again in the doll last night. The government moved to reassure you reassure the deputy I have met with the RSA I have um, conveyed the seriousness of the NCT backlog and my officials are meeting weekly with the RSA to monitor the progress in reducing test delays as well as supporting any appropriate requests from the RSA for assistance and also want to 
assure you, Deputy, that the use of inspection support personnel will not result in any job losses in the NCT. The RSA has my full confidence that the high testing standard that we expect uh, from the NCTS uh, will not be compromised. And as always, the safety of our road users remains uh, a priority for me and my department. The Minister Hildegard Nocton moving to reassure you last night, Darren O'Rourke. Are you reassured? Not entirely, Michael, um, because there's a number of questions I asked um, that, that weren't specifically dealt with. Look, I, I take it as positive that they're saying that they are assured that standards won't be won't be reduced. But to be clear, what's happening within the NCT centres is that there is a, a fundamental change to how the test is going to be conducted. Um, there's concerns raised by mechanics who are working in the NCT centre, inspectors in the NCT centres, um, saying that this will impact on the oversight and the standard of the tests. There are specific regulations which spell out the work that a tester is supposed to do. They're bringing in these uh, um, lesser qualified uh, um, people to to do part of the test. And there is concerns that this will impact on standards. And, and, and if it impacts on standards, it impacts on vehicle safety potentially. So I'm not entirely satisfied because I specifically asked the question if the new testing procedure is compliant, is lawful, is compliant with the, with the regulations. And the minister didn't specifically answer that. And that's a question that I'm going to continue to pursue because okay. we all want to ensure that the NCT tests, we get them on time, but also that, 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 they, are, that they actually mean something. OK, before you leave us, uh, can I ask you about uh, the hospital? Ambulances are to bypass our, our ladies from uh, the 12th of uh, December. Yeah, that's that's news that, that, that came out of the blue, uh, Michael, I have to say. And, and it's in, in, extremely frustrating for, for me as a, as a TD in the county. Uh, I had a written response from the Department of Health yesterday that said uh, engagement between the minister and the HSE was ongoing. Well, at the same time, literally the same day, uh, uh, HSE management at, at Navan were saying that there is new by, uh, partial bypass protocols that phase one of the, the so-called transformation was happening from the 12th of December and that phase two, whilst there wasn't a, a, a date sanctioned yet, is, is, is imminent. And I just think from a clinical, all of those questions that we have so well rehearsed mm. over recent weeks and months have not been answered, Michael. Uh, I think from a clinical perspective, there are very real questions to be asked. And from a political perspective, I just think this is an insulting way to treat politicians, whatever about that, but the community in County Mead, um, I just think it's it's absolutely outrageous and it's disgraceful. And, you know, the campaign to to hold on to services and enhance services at Navin Hospital will continue. I know there's a a, a meeting scheduled for the Save Navin Hospital group for... Um, for, for, for next Wednesday and I would encourage as many people as possible to, to attend that. Okay, the Taoiseach spoke about this yesterday and said uh, that it's a clinical decision and one that's being made in the interest of uh, patient safety. We may hear more about that later but we have to leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Darren O'Rourke, Sinn Féin spokesperson on transport, a TD for Mead East. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you know, there are more people who are homeless in uh, this country now than has ever been the case before. We learned on Friday that there are now a record 11,397 people, including 3,480 children living in emergency accommodation. Taoiseach, the housing emergency is not 
always just about bricks and mortar. The price of the disaster has been paid by the thousands of children, many not, not meeting milestones, losing childhoods as they grow up in emergency accommodation, and homelessness has almost become normalised. The price has been paid also by the relationships that break down because of the stress of housing insecurity and by the couples who postpone having a family and by the disconnected communities that result when people are unable to put down roots. Social Democrat co-leader Catherine Murphy speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday. Julie Ahern, Legal Policy and Services Manager with uh, the Children's Rights Alliance joins us. Good morning to you, Julie. Thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme today. Three and a half thousand children are, are thereabouts homeless this Christmas. It's incredible, isn't it? It really is. And this is the fourth consecutive month where we've been told it's a record high. So it is increasing at a rapid rate at this point in time, the number of children who are homeless. And when you think about 3,480, we hear so many figures thrown around. Mm. But that's enough to fill multiple national schools when you think about it and try to think what that number actually means. And all of those children are in a family. And then when you think then of the over 11,000 homeless adults as well, that is an enormous amount of people who are not living in a home this Christmas. Right. Why are they homeless? I mean, there's many reasons why people end up homeless, but we do know, and it's something that we would have seen during the pandemic, that when government put in place measures such as protections for people renting, a ban on evictions, that people actually, the homeless numbers fell, there was not as many people going into homeless services, not as many children going into homeless services. So we know that when protections are put in place, you can stop people going into homelessness. However, what we did see then is as soon as the bans were lifted, as soon as the rent bans, the eviction ban was lifted in particular, and the stall on rents, we did see then that numbers increased rapidly and they've been increasing ever since. So really what we know is that homelessness isn't inevitable, that action can be taken, but that we need to see consistent action taken and actually need root and branch action around housing, which we all know build more houses. But in the meantime, we need to do things like put in a ban on evictions, which we have now, and hopefully we'll start to see in the numbers that there'll be a change. But we need greater protection for renters because we know majority of families coming into homelessness are coming from rented accommodation. Okay, I'm sure every child is different. I'm sure they're all living different lives. But are there common traits? Uh, what, what is it like for a child to be homeless in this country today? I mean, we've done some research over the years about what it is like for children to be homeless. <clears throat> and we do know that it has a huge impact on their mental health, on their social experience, because they don't have access to things like the right to play. They're rooted often out of their communities. They're away from the people that they know. And we know that their relationships with their peers and with their friends can be very disrupted. But the other thing that we know is that it has impacts on their developmental and learning, and it often often it results in delays and poor academic attainment. But the other thing that we know around schooling is that it has a huge impact on their ability to be in school. We know that often families have to travel very long distances to take their children to school because we know that parents really want to have some consistency in their lives. They try to keep them in their original school. But we know that often this can result in children having to cross, particularly cross Dublin, to go to school very long journeys, often on public transport. And we know then that that has them coming in tired and it has them coming in not really able to learn. But the other thing that we know is that then it has a huge impact on the family relationships. So if you think about what it's like, the stress and the strain on a family, when something small happens, then you have something huge like homelessness, that actually the family relationships can often be quite strained. And 
often they're living in smaller confined spaces. So trying to have privacy away from your parents as you get a bit older, that can be challenging as well. Mm. So really it impacts every single aspect of a child's life when they're okay. home. So if a, a child isn't going to school or is too tired to learn when they do go to school, uh, undoubtedly that not just impacts on them academically, but uh, impacts on their life's prospects. Uh, is it time that can be bought back or will it have a, a negative impact on them for the rest of their lives? Well, we do know that parents with, who have children who are homeless make massive efforts to get their children to school and often those children are the children who are in school the most because it's a safe place for them to be away from the homeless accommodation that they're living in or the temporary accommodation. In terms of the impact it has on their life, children are incredibly resilient. But what we do know is that at the end of 2021, one in four children who are living in emergency accommodation were there for more than two years. So that is a very long time to try to, as you say, buy back for a child because childhood actually goes so quickly when you think about it. And two years is an awful long time in a child's life. So while children are resilient and they can often come back from, from a lot of things, two years is a very long time to try to make up. So really what we need to be looking at is where people are in emergency accommodation, that it's for the shortest time possible and that that accommodation is the most suitable for the family. And in the meantime, we also need to be tackling those root and branch issues to prevent people coming into homelessness. Okay, and within the month, uh, Santa will be coming to visit all of uh, the boys and girls in uh, the country. Uh, Are homeless children concerned that they don't have a a dress or are they anxious that Santa won't know where they live? I mean, we all know Santa's great and Santa has the ability to find where everyone is. So hopefully they will be able to write their letters and give them where they are and that Santa will still be able to come. I'm sure if that's the case, uh, very... uh, uh, anxious time for them though uh, and a very unfair situation uh, to put children in isn't it? Uh, I think that's the point I, I'm trying to make uh, Julie uh, by asking that question uh, because whatever about anyone's situation children did nothing at all to find themselves in this situation. Yeah I mean children and parents generally have done nothing to find themselves in this situation as we know we're living in a country with some of the highest rents in Europe and particularly in Dublin we've some of the highest rents that are, that, are, that are in the country. And what we do see then is that the lack of housing is causing a big problem. You know, we hear from families who are told, you know, you have three months, you need to leave. They go looking for another place to rent and it's just not there. And really what you're seeing is the impact of the housing market on children and young people directly onto their lives. And, you know, 3,480 children that is a lot of children who are going to be anxious, worried, mm. who are going to be having their lives impacted every day. Okay. Thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Julia Hearn, Legal Policy and Services Manager with the Children's Rights Alliance. Michael Reed on LMFM. As you know, the Cabinet has approved new legislation which, when it comes into law, will mean that we are all organ donors unless we decide to opt out. Pretty straightforward on the face of it, but maybe a little bit more complicated than you imagine. Let's hear a little bit more about what is being proposed. Carol Moore is the Chief Executive of the Irish Kidney Association. Very good morning to you, Carol, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. You're calling for uh, an informed public debate and to explain what this legislation means because it isn't quite as straightforward as it sounds, is it? 
Uh, that's right, Michael, and thanks very much for having me on your show. Yes, under the current system, uh, when uh, a potential donor is, is identified, usually in ICU, the family are approached for uh, consent. Would they consider their loved one becoming an organ donor? And generally, the family might not know um, the loved one's wishes, so to be asked, does he do they carry an organ donor card? Do they have a smartphone app? Have they ever discussed it? Is there a code 115 on the driving license? So that's the way it works at the moment. And under the proposed new system, what will happen is a register will be um, uh, available so that people who do not want to be an organ donor can opt out. And what that means is that if a potential organ donor is identified in hospital, the register will be checked. And if the person is on the opt-out register, they've said no, they Mm. don't want to be considered for organ donation, the family won't be approached. That's a very big change. If they're not on the opt-out register, the family will still be approached. And this is really important Mm. point to make, that it's not that if you're uh, not on the opt-out register, that your organs will simply be taken. That is incorrect. Mm. The family will still have the final say and as to can, whether an organ donation proceeds. And, and they so, can still object. Or they can't mm. say, no, um, this is not something we want to consider. Mm. And the family wishes will always be paramount. So that's okay. a really important point. So what does all of that combined mean? Does it mean that unintentionally there could actually be fewer donors? I w- say that's unlikely because what the bill will do is put a legal framework on um, the whole area of organ donation, which is badly needed. And at the moment, for example, we can't do altruistic donors. So if somebody wants to donate a kidney, they cannot do it in Ireland. They have to go to England. So it will give more people the opportunity um, to do it. And the other thing it will do is it will hopefully normalise organ donation. That will be seen as if you're Irish, if you're living in Ireland, the norm is that you will actually donate your organs if the situation arises. So the the legislation is really, really important in changing the conversation. It is quite complicated. Um, Other countries have gone down this route and they've put a huge amount of resources into staff who are properly trained to ask these questions at very difficult circumstances. The worst time of a family's life, there's extra ICU beds, extra operating theatres, extra surgeons. So the families, the the countries that have worked very well with this opt-out system, they've put a lot of money into it. And and time is of the essence uh, as well uh, in in these circumstances. If it won't result in fewer donations, will it result in more donations? Again, it will depend on how much resources actually goes into supporting the Act. And um, obviously public awareness is key and people knowing um, that they will be approached and that they're more likely to consent. But again, the research shows that knowing your loved one's wishes and having specially trained staff making the approach is where you run into the 90% in terms of families consenting to organ donation. So the legislation is a key enabler, but of itself, it's not going to lead to hugely increased donations. Okay, so you welcome the legislation, is it? Oh, we're very delighted that 
we're making progress on it. We think there are a number of areas where the legislation can be improved on. For example, we haven't seen it yet. We're told there's some changes, but one of the changes we don't know whether it's in there is that in other countries they publish full data on the number of donors approached, how many were actually worked up for donation, how many families were actually approached, um, how many families consented. So you can see right down at hospital level how the system is working, how the process is working. And as we know well, what gets measured gets managed. So we need to publish that data so it can be seen how well the system is working. That's one change we'd like Mm. to see in the legislation, most definitely. Okay, and in tandem with the legislation, and information campaign uh, because like a, a lot of things in the world today unfortunately uh, very important issues can be subjected to false information. Yes and that would be one of the concerns we would have about the proposed approach that already we're seeing headlines saying families don't have a choice whereas if you had both an opt-in where people can say yes I want to donate and or no I don't want to donate it's much simpler messaging in terms of public awareness. You can use statements like, share your wishes, don't Mm. leave your family in doubt, whereas the opt-out only, it's a much more complicated message to sell. Mm. So that's something we've asked the Department of Health to do a risk assessment around this in terms of the potential for false information. Okay. Uh, Is it not a a stronger statement of intent to apply for an organ donor card Uh, And that after your passing, uh, people will say, well, look, they went to the trouble of doing that. That's obviously what they wanted uh, and understand what your wishes were than opting out or forgetting to opt out, let's say. Yes. Well, the trouble is most people, this doesn't affect the vast majority of people. So are most people actually going to make the effort to actually get a donor card or to sign up? So... It's um, making as many communication tools as available as possible and changing the culture so that the norm is um, you donate. And that's where the public awareness campaigns uh, are very, very important. And we put very, very little money into public awareness campaigns. Uh, We get some funding from the HSE, but that covers about 50% of the cost of our National Donor Awareness Week and the donor card. Other countries put millions into donor awareness. So that's something we hope those monies will come with the new legislation. Okay, very good. Uh, Still time to talk about it because it's uh, a bill that's been approved by Cabinet. Uh, It'll have to make its way through the Oireachtas, but undoubtedly there'll be much debate uh, in between now and when it becomes law. But thank you indeed uh, for starting that debate with us this morning and indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. That's Carol Moore, who's uh, the Chief Executive of the Irish Kidney Association. Now, I said earlier on when we were speaking to Darren O'Rourke, we may hear more a little bit uh, about uh, this situation in Navan, uh, as you've been hearing over the last few days. Uh, the HSE has uh, directed paramedics uh, to bypass the hospital in Navan from the 12th of December. Families are, are hammered with the cost of living. Uh, people are finding it difficult to pay for cars. We might come back to that about the tolls with Padre Tobin later. Let's hear what Padre Tobin had to say about the hospital. Um, the HSE have confirmed that there will be an ambulance bypass of Our Lady's Hospital in Navan, and that will start on the 12th of December. They said it was the first step in a two-step process to close the A&E in Navan, and that the second step will take place, they said, in the, in the start of uh, the new year. Now, Taoiseach, this is a scandalous situation, that it would happen in the, the middle of a winter surge 
when hundreds of thousands of people have been on trolleys in the state over the last year, when we're literally out the door in terms of pressure in Navant and Drogheda, and when clinicians in Drogheda have said that this step is dangerous to health. And this is uh, the response from Antishak Michal Martin. Tobin, in relation to the ambulance protocols, those are clinical decisions. We have to be very careful here. Uh, My understanding is that uh, in the absence of those decisions around ambulance protocols, we could end up with seriously ill patients being attended by uh, doctors at a level, at a junior level, that may not necessarily have the expertise needed. Uh, these, no, sorry, no, but it's very serious. So we can't second-guess clinical advice on these matters. I think we, we all need to be very collectively careful. No, no, that. no, no, no. Right, that's the uh, Taoiseach Michal Martin responding to Patrick Tobin in the Dáil yesterday. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to the Central Criminal Court where the trial of a man for the murder of an 18-year-old in Dunleer got underway yesterday. Fiona McGuinness is Courts Reporter with Courts News Ireland and was in the Central Criminal Court yesterday. Very good morning to you, Fiona, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. Many people were very shocked at the... You're very welcome. Many people were very shocked at the murder of Cameron Riley uh, in Dunleer. This goes back to 2018. Uh, remind us uh, of what happened uh, on that May evening. Um, yes, so on the evening of um, Friday the 25th of May 2018, um, a group of about 15 or 16 young people um, gathered in, in in a field in Dunleer. Um, they were socialising and doing the, the things that young people do. They were hanging out and and drinking and um, the case was opened yesterday for the state by Dean Kelly who he told the jury at the Central Criminal Court that they were they were doing what young people do and it should have been an, an unremarkable evening mm. um, but unfortunately the following morning a man was out walking his dog shortly after 8 o'clock and he came across the body of um, of Mr Cameron in the field. Yeah, uh, a really shocking uh, discovery for uh, that man uh, and indeed for the entire community uh, a young boy but out with uh, his friends uh, all young people as you say 15, 16 young people uh, who gathered in that field uh, playing music uh, I think and uh, having some drinks uh, and socialising they went off to a, a takeaway uh, and I think that's uh, the last time that uh, Cameron Riley was seen was it? That's right, yes. So the the court heard yesterday um, that Cameron Riley um, ordered some food at the takeaway shortly after 12 o'clock with some of the group and then the group were seen um, leaving the area. Um, The state said it was their case that um, Aaron Aaron Connolly was part of that group along with um, Cameron Riley and they said that the... um, the jury of seven women and five men would would hear that it was the prosecution's case that Cameron Riley went back to the field with Aaron Connolly and at a point between 12.40 and 1.40, Mr Connolly caused the injuries that the jury will hear about in evidence and that he intentionally brings about the death of Cameron Riley. OK, now I take it Aaron Connolly, who's charged with uh, the murder of Cameron, is in around the same age as Cameron. He's 22 now, isn't he? That's right. Aaron Connolly is 22 now, but he was the same age as Cameron Riley at the time of Mr. Riley's death. Um, in fact, the, the jury heard that he was just two weeks older 
than Mr. Riley at the time. Okay, and Dean Kelly, the senior counsel for the state, uh, makes the claim, at least, that there's no argument as to whether Aaron Connolly was one of uh, the young people who gathered to socialise in the field that night. That's right. The court heard that there was no doubt that Aaron Connolly was there um, at the time that the socialising was taking place in the field, that he left and he then came back. Um, Counsel told the jury that he bought a case of beer and assorted drinks and that the group ultimately found themselves there in the field socialising. They had a couple of Bluetooth speakers with them and they were there from about half eight in the evening onwards. Okay, and Aaron Connolly is uh, pleading innocent, is he? Aaron Connolly um, was arraigned before the court on Monday afternoon and he pleaded not guilty. Okay. So what happens next? There will be obviously evidence in this case. Uh, Will it be a a long trial? Um, Yes, the trial is expected to last about three weeks. Um, The court was told that there will be about 70 witnesses called during the course of that period. So the the evidence um, will be laid out during that time and and the witnesses will give their evidence in the case to the jury. That seems like an awful lot of witnesses, doesn't it? Or maybe uh, uh, that's normal in in trials like this. Um, Does it seem a lot to you as somebody who reports from the courts uh, so frequently? Um, Yes, well, I I suppose it it would be... um, It's a complicated case and there's a lot of witnesses. There was quite a few of the young people who were there on the evening will be called to give their evidence. Um, So, yes, and there will be quite a substantial amount of medical evidence. Okay, and the state pathologist uh, will be one of those giving that medical evidence uh, because uh, Cameron Riley died uh, died as a result of asphyxia. Um, that's right. The court was the court heard yesterday that they will hear evidence from pathologist Dr. Linda Mulligan um, that Mr. Riley died as a result of asphyxia and external pressure mm. to the front of his of his neck. Um, okay. Mr. Kelly also told the jury that the pathologist um, will give evidence that his cause of death was consistent with a chokehold or suffocation as a result of a lig- ligature of some kind around his neck. Okay. Uh, was uh, Cameron Riley's family in, in court yesterday? I understand he, he lived uh, with his grandmother. That's right. Um, the jury heard that Mr Riley lived in Dunlear with his grandparents but went between there and his parents' home in Drogheda. Um, he was a student in DKIT in Dundalk at the time of his death. Um, they heard that Mr Riley had a wide circle of friends and enjoyed socialising that he had a large group and that um, uh, that this was part of the reason why he gravitated towards Dunlear Okay, well there'll be a lot of interest in it uh, I'm sure over the next three weeks or so as you say Fiona Uh, thank you for uh, joining us uh, as that trial gets underway in uh, the Central Criminal Court much appreciated that's uh, Fiona McGuinness, Courts Reporter with Courts News Ireland. Now, let's uh, go back uh, to the Dáil yesterday because uh, there were a number of local issues uh, that were raised in uh, the Dáil. We started to hear uh, some of uh, Padre Tobin. Indeed, I think all of uh, the local TDs were talking about tolls in the region uh, yesterday uh, because uh, we have a, a few of them around here, as you know, better than any. Uh, but before we hear about the tolls, uh, maybe we can hear about uh, some of uh, the other stories that we've been talking uh, about uh, and the way that they've been 
uh, reported, if you like, on the internet. And Taoiseach, I want to bring up the issue of online disinformation. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Information and hit on Sunday, um, a man filmed himself as he seemed to knock down a cyclist in the Castletown Road in Nundalk and then posted the video. The guards are investigating at this point in time. Um, in Carlingford, uh, I've spoken to the minister in relation that there is a need for uh, communication with the community, but we have all been bombarded with online disinformation, conspiracy theories, and absolute hateful stuff. I've also seen videos where wrong addresses um, have been put up as um, being people who've committed crimes and whatever and have endangered families. We need to ensure we have all the tools that are necessary to deal with this. And uh, Rory O'Muraku there had more to say about uh, that protest in Carningford. Look, we're all in complete support, obviously, of um, looking after those that are fleeing war, whether our torture or whether it's Ukraine or, or other what can be hellholes throughout the world. We, we all accept that we have to basically put serious effort into ensuring we are streamlining the means by which we are making accommodation available, and we need to ensure that the communication is better to avoid some of... Um, some of the instances that have happened, I'm talking about in, in Carlingford, and stuff that people have jumped on, those from outside, that's utterly reprehensible. Um, but these are things that we obviously need to fix. Uh, we have long had a huge issue in relation to direct provision and in relation to our processing, so I, I think there is a huge amount of streamlining that needs done. Um, but the fact is uh, that this is what we have to do from a point of view of delivering for people. Okay, let's hear some of uh, the response to Patrick Tobin from the Taoiseach. It was definitely more a coup, um, raised the issue of disinformation and hate, and that's shocking examples that you identify there, and the, and the Minister has published legislation in relation to hate legislation, which is the legislation that is really designed to, to go after people who would do such um, horrendous acts like that. Um, and there's no toleration of that. Okay, that's uh, the Taoiseach responding to Rory O'Muraku, of course. Excuse me. Now, let's uh, hear, perhaps it's uh, time, <laughs> it's probably long past time, uh, to hear from the aforementioned Peter Tobey. Families are, are hammered with the cost of living. Uh, people are finding it difficult to pay for cars, to pay to get cars fixed. 
pay for fuel. Nearly 50% of the fuel that they're paying is actually going to the government. The government are collecting more in fuel taxes today than they did uh, before the cost of living crisis actually uh, raised its ugly head. It's an incredible situation that this is happening. And it's no small money for families. We have a situation, Minister, that families in my constituency of Meath are often forced to go through three tolls on the way to work and three tolls on the way back. So you have a situation where people are paying well over two grand currently for the, to, to use the tolls in this state. And the worst thing about that is that they're, 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 they're spending that money on an annual basis and still spending three hours a day in traffic. They're in traffic jams and they're being made to pay for the, the pleasure of that traffic jam through the toll that this government is using. And the truth of the matter is, is let's be honest, the tolls are a cash cow. That's Peter Tobain in Meath. This is Peter Fitzpatrick in Louth. They are cash cows. These are the huge revenue raises for the state for reinvestment in the road network. What has happened now is that just an underfined and unexplained grab for the maximum allowance revenue for these companies under the gush of keeping up with the inflation. Minister, rural areas within my constituency of Loud and East Mead will be the hardest hit of all these toll increases, whether it be now or in six months' time. The situation will not change. These are the people who are dependent on private car use due to the lack of transport infrastructure. A key goal of policy is to get people out of the cars, which will inevitably involve higher charges for motorists across a range of areas. I understand there was a model shift to trains and public transport, and perhaps this is the main reason for the Minister backing this increase. However, I am disappointed that the 8.6 rise in the toll from the 21st of August 2021 to 22 is continuing against this maximum increase by Transport Infrastructure Island. Big heights in the middle of the cost of, of living crisis are not good idea. Does the Minister know that, know that inflation will have settled by June? And the cost of living, crisis in living will have, will have funded. If inflation rates low, will that mean that increase will not be required? What is the general idea of kicking the can down the road? Mm. Labour's Jed Nash invited the Minister to the region. Uh, I would challenge the Minister to drive through the town of Drogheda or to drive through the village of Julianstown. Back in 2018, uh, it was recommended that Julianstown uh, be placed on the capital programme for a bypass to protect the health and safety of the people of Julianstown. And all we have now is a grant of under €3 million Euros from Mead County Council uh, through your own department and from some of their own resources to develop uh, safety measures uh, in the village. Uh, now, that won't reduce the traffic by one iota. It, it may reduce the risk uh, to the lives uh, of the people of Julianstown, but it, not, will, it will not uh, save any lives because there are very serious health implications given the congestion and the environmental damage being caused uh, to uh, to the area. The Baymore area of South Drogheda is absolutely crucified with heavy goods vehicles leaving the Irish cement factory in Platten and the municipal waste incinerator at Carnstown County Meath avoiding the toll coming through a uh, rural area, Baymore, rural roads that aren't, uh, 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 can't, simply, simply can't accommodate uh, that level of traffic and going through the uh, village of uh, Julianstown. Very serious local issues. Jed Nash said he's been raising those issues since he became a TD. This whole farce comes from the absolutely ridiculous contracts that were entered into by Fianna Fáil years ago. And I've been raising this issue here since I was elected in 2016 because Drogheda is the only town in Ireland with told slip roads. 
and that has had a detrimental effect on the town. You have to pay a toll to get from one side of the town to the other. To get from one retail park on one side of the town, you have to pay a toll to get to the other side. Otherwise, you spend 40 minutes in traffic because you have lorries, HGVs, vans, all driving through the town to, to avoid the toll payments. And I've long campaigned for the removal of the slip road toll, but successive governments to date have done absolutely nothing about it. And it's clear from the responses that I've received over the years that the protection of the profits of these private companies is your government's main priority. You wouldn't even consider lifting the toll on the slip roads during Flakyol and Drogheda because it would mean compensating the companies for their loss of profits as per their contracts. Working people don't get to demand pay increases due to inflation, but the government has ensured that these companies who operate these tolls can do just that. And that was Imelda Munster. She was speaking to this Sinn Féin motion. I suppose the whole idea of tolls was also to free up traffic and also to pay for um, maintenance. Now, initially, when we were first told about tolls, um, as I say, with the East Link and uh, the EMF and the, the West Link, and before we had the incarnation of, of the M50 was the idea that these would be short-term fixes in relation to paying for itself. But obviously that has changed, and as everybody says, the difficulty is these PPPs that were negotiated did not deliver for people. Now, we can all talk about individual tolls. I will obviously talk about the M1. Um, in fairness, uh, Imelda Munster spoke about the difficulty in Drogheda in relation to the slip road and the huge cost that that is and the impact it has on, on Drogheda. And here, like at this stage, because of the cost of tolls, we're dealing with a huge amount of hauliers and others that are going through the towns that were meant to be bypassed. Right, that's where your America. Uh, there are the statements uh, from uh, the local TDs. I'm sure all of you, every one of us that is, have heard some of those complaints at some stage at some point in the past, uh, but that's some of the contributions from the local TDs to that dull debate yesterday. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Well, as uh, you've been hearing, uh, Ukrainian citizens have been told to, to brace themselves for the next onslaught, the next raft of mus- Russian missiles. President Putin is failing, but he is responding with more brutality, attacking Ukrainian cities, attacking critical infrastructure. And President Putin is now turning winter into uh, a war uh, or a weapon of aggression against the Ukrainian people. And, um, and therefore, we need to uh, support Ukraine. And I'm extremely grateful for the strong support from the United States, uh, military support, economic support, uh, and everything you do uh, to help the Ukrainians. And I'm absolutely confident that the message uh, from the meeting here today and tomorrow will be that NATO allies uh, will uh, provide uh, and continue to provide unprecedented support to Ukraine. We need to stand together. Uh, because um, uh, it is in our security interest to ensure that President Putin doesn't win uh, because that will send a message that authoritarian leaders can get away by using uh, brutal military force. Okay, so the resistance will continue with the support of NATO. That's uh, the NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. Uh, But as he says, winter is to be used by Putin and the Russians as a weapon of war and it's going to be a long, cold winter. Let's speak to Ross O'Sullivan, who's Head of Emergency Operations with Concern and just back from Ukraine. And a very good morning to you, Ross, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. Tell us about your recent trip, if you would, please. Um, thank you, um, Michael, um, um, and very good morning to you and your listeners. Uh, yes, I, I, I got back last week from uh, what's now my fifth trip into Ukraine this year. 
um, and um, um, I, yeah, it's um, every single time I go there, uh, we're seeing on on the one hand, um, you know, steady progress in terms of of, of the support and uh, uh, of for people, uh, predominantly on the move inside Ukraine, the internally displaced, which is the the people that uh, that we are particularly targeting um, with our program, um, and on the other hand, um, you know, just. Uh, the longer this uh, conflict goes on, um, the harder and harder and harder it is becoming for the ordinary people, the population of Ukraine. Um, and now winter is upon us and it is dark and it is very telling. And is it becoming harder and harder for overseas development agencies like yourself in concern to help people because of uh, the t- deteriorating situation? Um, um, um in, in many respects, uh, we, uh, we're expecting it to, to remain hard um, and to remain difficult. Uh, we never expected it to be easy. Um, I, I suppose one of the hardest things both we and the, the people of Ukraine have got to contend with is the great uncertainty around this conflict. You know, uh, we're, um, it's, it'll, be a, you know it'll be a year um, um, in, in February, which is not too far away. We're now into winter. Um, you know, uh, we're making plans for next year. Uh, do we start making plans for the year beyond? Um, uh, that's very, very hard. It's very, very hard to plan uh, a program of response when uh, when all that uncertainty exists. So in that regard, it's difficult. But uh, having said that, there has been a great mobilisation. I mean, you, you, know, you and and your previous uh, speakers, uh, or the the interview uh, talked about that and. Uh, the reports from NATO and so on, you know, there has been a great deal of solidarity and support uh, going into Ukraine. Mm. And and the the stark reality is it's going to have to remain. Okay, Uh, we're looking at a very cold winter. Uh, Ukraine uh, wouldn't uh, be the type of uh, place where you could do without central heating very easily in any normal circumstance. It'll get down to minus 20, won't it? Um, that's 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 my understanding. Um, I'm, I was in Ukraine for the first time um, this year um, in, in early March, um, and um, um, I'll be honest with you, it was the coldest I've ever been in Europe. It's the coldest I have ever felt. Um, now, and having said that, we were starting to come out of winter at that time. We have still really to see the depths of winter yet. Um, temperatures are currently in the region of um, minus four, minus six on a daily basis right throughout the country. And then wind chill factors are added to that. Um, it will drop to minus 20, I'm told. Mm. I spoke to a couple of my colleagues on the ground this morning uh, just to touch base with them. And the first thing they said to me was, we're absolutely cold. We're freezing. Yeah. Uh, you're hoping to be able to bring generators uh, to people. Yes, um, it's something that we are we're, we're currently making plans for. I mean, a key thing about this whole program is is that it has to be flexible, it has to be adaptable, it has to be mobile, because it has to change with the different facets and and, and aspects of of this conflict um, as it unfolds. Um, and um, because um, so much of the power infrastructure has been affected, um, and that isn't just about electricity for light, yep. um, although much of the of the ele- of the of the heating is provided by gas in in Ukraine, it requires electricity to be able to man the pumps. So people are cold, and, and in the cities, particularly, they live in apartments. It won't be easy to support them in that regard. Mm. So centres are being set up, especially in the urban areas, in in community centres, halls, places like that where they will be, there will be uh, generators provided to, to put in heat, um, um, electricity provided to, to charge phones, um, food provided. Now, these centres already exist. We call them collective centres or humanitarian hubs. We've been supporting them right through this year. 
but now they're adapting to the new normal, pretty much, which is winter mm. and heat and warmth. And, and to, sure to, to provide a, a roof over people's heads, uh, and not just for people who have had uh, their homes destroyed uh, because it, it became under attack, uh, but if the power is out, if you look at some of these tall towers, uh, there's a lot of people who won't make it up the stairs, 10 flights of stairs, for example. No, no, and, 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 that, and that, that is true, but also community, um, community kind of uh, cohesion is very, very strong in Ukraine. Mm. Um, and, and people are first and foremost looking after each other. What we're doing is we're acting as an enabler to help them get um, either material support, food and, and, and hygiene and electricity to certain areas that are on the ground. We're not going to be able to um, specifically um, help people um, you know, who are up in apartments and so mm. on. Mm. The most vulnerable will be helped to get to centres where they can um, um, stay warm. That's the priority over the coming months. Okay, and how many people would be in each centre? It it, it really depends um, on the needs um, and on the capacity and the resources in any given place. There's a huge population, you know. We're talking about, at this moment in time, we're talking about upwards of 6.5 million displaced people inside Ukraine. That's that's third terms of people who are on the move. Mm. Then you're talking about the vulnerable people who are maybe still at home, but now they're deprived of electricity and and heat and warmth. There's anything between 10 and 15 million of those at any one time. So um, the centres will... They, they always take what they can. So if a centre can take 50 people, it'll take 50 people. And then more centres will grow up around them. The one thing that we are seeing daily, weekly, monthly in Ukraine is that the resilience of people, the determination of the local population to not allow um, this to prevent them from uh, continuing uh, to, well, it's, it's about survival now mm. during winter from so many people. So it's hard to say. I mean, I've, I've been to centres now that have 200 people in them. I've been to centres that have 25. OK, well, if winter is a weapon of war, people or citizens are the target. I think that's clear to a large extent. Given uh, the dire circumstances that so many people are, are living in, do you expect more people to flee? There's still a lot of women and children in Ukraine. There are. Um, um, it's, it's hard to tell. Um, um, we, we do know that the, the authorities, both national authorities and, and more local authorities around Ukraine, are, are they're not necessarily telling people to, to leave the country or to flee, but they're certainly asking people who are already out of Ukraine not to come back right now. They are suggesting that because there has been, we are starting to see very strong signs of people returning to Ukraine. You know, um, upwards of two and a half million people have returned in the last three months. And I think the authorities are worried that if the infrastructure continues to be targeted, then um, what is already um, a very, very, very stark situation in terms of trying to kind of get the the electricity grids and so on back up and running constantly because they keep getting hit, then um, um, it's very, very hard if people are starting to return to the situation. But will more people leave Ukraine? Um, It's difficult to say. We feel that those who have wanted to leave up to now are, are gone. And those who are remaining in the country are either unable to leave or they are choosing not to. Okay, or are determined to stay if it's possible. Uh, And that may not be the case. Uh, Undoubtedly, people will welcome them here and uh, across Europe. Uh, I think all of us are very affected and uh, disturbed by what's happening uh, to citizens uh, and uh, the cruelty of uh, these war crimes on ordinary people. 
who are being targeted uh, through no fault of their own in complete innocence. Uh, and undoubtedly, when people come to this country, the vast majority of us will welcome them here. Uh, but uh, many of us would like to help you to help them there. And that's uh, what Concern and other agencies are doing on the ground. What's the best way that people can help Concern? Um, um, the best way people can help concern, I mean, as I mentioned, you know, uh, the uncertainty around how long this is going to go on. But we are certainly on the ground. We've been on the ground since April. We're not leaving until this is resolved. Um, and the best way to help us continue to help the people inside Ukraine um, is by going to the Concern website, uh, www.concern.net. Um, and um, um, and uh, they can make um, they can provide support donations and so on through that um, uh, because for us the the uncertainties around what's happening in Ukraine are uh, you know they mean that we need to continue supporting people um, in the in the medium term we just don't know how long this is going to go on for but as I say we are there we have to be there it's the right thing to be there. Um, and currently our programme is supporting 40,000 people and, and that number is increasing every week. Um, and the uncertainty and the fear that people have been feeling right through this year as this conflict has unfolded has now been added to this, to, to this um, uh, you know, the, the, the whole cold factor, the winter factor. And it's really about focusing on that initially now and getting people through to next April. And then, you know, we'll, we'll see where this goes. Oh. So, yes, please um, uh, go to our website and, and, and help us in any way you can. All right, Ross, good to talk to you. Thank you for joining us this morning. Ross O'Sullivan, Head of Emergency Operations with Concern. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Home Instead is calling on uh, the government uh, to uh, introduce employment regulations which would allow it to employ people from outside of the European Union because it can't get the staff it needs to carry out home care. Michael Wright is uh, the Director of Corporate Operations at Home Instead. Good morning, Michael. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Michael. How bad is the problem? So the government itself says that there is a waiting list of 6,000 people in Ireland uh, waiting for a carer to provide home support to them. So these are people who've been approved for government-funded home care. Uh, So they've been approved because they have a clinical need to receive home care. Most of them would be at home at the moment. Some of them would be in, say, a hospital waiting to get home or a nursing home waiting to get home. And unfortunately, there's a lack of of carers to provide the amount of home care that we need. And that waiting list is is 6,000 people. So uh, the regulation to allow the hiring of people outside the EU to be home care is an important way of of finding more staff to help those people waiting for home care at this moment in time. Okay, if you were able to get the staff, regardless of where they came from, uh, I suppose, Michael, uh, how many uh, people would you be able to provide care for? So on average, um, someone in receipt of of HSE-funded care gets about 10 hours of support a week or just under 10 hours of support. So if you were to hire somebody on uh, a full-time contract and assuming people are happy with say a shower at 11 o'clock in the morning because it's not possible to shower everybody at exactly the same time if that was required as as part of someone's home support package so assuming there was flexibility in in terms of how you could deliver those hours you know one person could one one employee from say outside the eu on a full-time contract could care for 
for um, for four clients. So if there's if there's six thousand people on the waiting list, you'd need to employ one thousand five hundred people on on full time contracts mm. uh, to, to meet that need. Now I think the regulations are looking at allowing uh, home care companies, including the HSE, to to employ up to a thousand people uh, from outside the EU. <clears throat> so there's clearly other things that we need to do to employ more people who are currently EU citizens living here in Ireland. Okay. Uh, and why is it necessary to go outside of the EU? Uh, why is uh, the workforce pool not there? Why is there not enough people available? Yeah, no, good, good, good questions. Uh, so a lot of the people working in home care work part-time, and they work part-time because it fits in with, say, family commitments, uh, and also because demand for home care uh, peaks in the morning. So the majority of people who have home care, and I'm talking about somebody calling to the house to help someone get dressed and have breakfast and remind them to take medications and help mm. with personal care, such as having a shower. So the majority of these visits happen in the morning. Um, and there's only so many people available to do part-time work kind of from 9 o'clock in the morning to 11 o'clock in, in certain areas around Ireland. So... As we age, uh, and that's one of the you know success stories of Ireland over the last 50 years, the fact that we're living longer and longer. So as our society ages, demand for home care is just going to increase. So we need to think um, where we're going to find carers. And, and in many cases, there's simply not enough people uh, here in Ireland to meet this growing need. Does we the work need issue- to be made more attractive, though? Because you often hear complaints from carers uh, that uh, they don't get paid for travelling between one person that they're carrying and uh, another person's house. Uh, uh, they can't uh, claim mileage either for that time. Yeah, no, good point, Michael. So government recently produced a report uh, on how to improve the overall attractiveness of home care to uh, people who are looking for work so that more people would consider, say, working in home care rather than working in a nursing home Mm. or GP surgery, whatever it may be. Now, part of the issue we have is is that we have a a highly competitive um, home care market. There's over 100 organizations providing home care to the HSE. And traditionally, the HSE has picked its providers based on how much it costs. So the HSE's had a price-driven approach to procuring home care from organizations. That current contract expires in four weeks' time. Mm-hmm. And as yet, we don't know what the HSE is going to replace it with. The recommendations from government is that the HSE needs to stipulate that the things that you've mentioned, such as mileage and travel time, are are paid as part of of any employment contract. Mm. But we're still to see the details of that. But that that would make a huge difference. I mean, if you travel, if it takes you an hour to travel and you're not getting paid for that hour, um, that's uh, working for nothing, people will tell you. And it's actually costing you because of uh, the cost of uh, petrol. Uh, And you make some very good points uh, about how that could be offset because we're already paying to keep patients in hospital beds uh, when they could be cared for at home or they may not need to go to a nursing home when they could be cared for at at home. Uh, So one could possibly offset the other. Uh, But if the work isn't attractive for people already living here, uh, you'd wonder how people could come from outside of the European Union to work under those conditions and afford somewhere to live themselves. So where where Home Instead is, is coming from is that we already employ people from over 50 different countries across Ireland. So Home Instead is, is providing home care right, right across the state. We're in every county. 
And we're employing people from all over the world who are here in Ireland, either because they're Irish citizens or EU citizens or because they've got, say, a student visa or because their mm. spouse has a right to reside here. And, and what we found is that we've hired people who've worked with us for many years. And then because they're on, say, a student visa, that visa expires and all of a sudden they then have to they have to leave the country. So we have lost staff because their visas expired. Okay. Now, a couple, of, a couple of years ago, nursing homes were given the right to offer a right to residency, to offer a work permit to people working as healthcare assistants in nursing homes. Mm. So we had people who left home instead to go and work in a nursing home because that was a route to residency. Okay, and so, they could continue in the accommodation that they had previously. Ab- absolutely. Okay, right. So, so we, we, have, we have several hundred people who are potentially in this mm. situation. So our immediate concern as an employer is that if we can offer a right to residency to some of our existing employees, well, they've got accommodation already. Yes, accommodation is a, is a clear crisis in, mm. in Ireland in terms of cost of living. But it's not as if we're envisaging bringing people from overseas to to, sure. to Ireland. People sure. are already here and okay. we want them to stay here. Michael, it's really important work uh, that you do uh, and I wouldn't want to take away from that for a, a moment uh, and a really important service predominantly for older people. What about language, though? Is that uh, a factor in you deciding if or not you're going to recruit somebody, uh, do you have a, a certain level of proficiency in English that you look for? Yes, yes. I mean, clearly, you have to be able to communicate both verbally and uh, in writing in English in order to become a home care worker. And and we recognise that it's it's also a difficulty, not just in terms of somebody who has you know very good English or, or, or good English to work as a healthcare assistant, we also have those cultural difficulties. I mean, if you're caring for somebody who's, say, 85, who maybe have, say, cognitive impairment, and if you've just moved to you know, Ireland from, say, Brazil or the Philippines, your knowledge of the GAA, of Irish language, of Irish politics, I mean, it's, it's limited. So the ability to form relations is, is clearly something that, that Home Instead tries to support its staff through in terms of that orientation around Irish culture. So the language is key, but also helping people understand, you know, what it is to be Irish, as it were, um, is is really important. Okay, Uh, uh, you want to recruit, but you feel your hands are tied, uh, I suppose, to surmise. So we we have people already in Ireland who are either going to take work in a nursing home or leave. So our existing employees in Ireland, what we want to be able to do is offer them a pathway to stay, so that they can remain in Ireland, work full time as home care workers. Uh, and that then will chip away at the waiting list that government has, uh, 6,000 people waiting for home care. Mary Butler, the minister, says no issue is more urgent than the nationwide shortage of, of home care workers at this moment. So getting this regulation from Damien English, um, you know, ideally before Christmas is, is a really important step. OK, well, we'll hear from the minister tomorrow. We'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed, Michael, for joining us this morning. Michael Wright, Director of Corporate Operations at Home Instead. Michael Reed on LMFM. Eight days to the week, 100 minutes to the hour, 28 hours to the day, five weeks to the month, 36 months to the year. Or as uh, the lyrics of Kilroy was here go, dead man told him how to live, work to live or live to work. All of that, a far cry from a four-day week. Imagine. Well, 
Forza, Four Day Week Ireland, UCD and Boston College did more than that and they've been carrying out uh, a trial on a four day week as you've been hearing in uh, the bulletins uh, this morning. Let's speak to Kevin Donoghue, the chair of uh, the Four Day Week Ireland group. Good morning to you, Kevin, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, Very positive results by all accounts. Absolutely, yeah. And look, I suppose this is the first coordinated reduced work time trial or four-day week trial um, that Ireland has undertaken. It's undertaken with uh, Boston College, University College Dublin, and we're obviously presenting the report later on. But it's, it's great to be in a position to say that essentially across all metrics uh, wh- where we measured it, the experience was positive both from an employer and an employee perspective. Right. Well, that's the interesting part of it because 100% of uh, employees preferred the new schedule, working four instead of five days uh, a week, and that's understandable. But did that mean that they were working less? Yes, so so we promote the um, the 180-100 model, which means that people get 100% of the pay in 80% of the time for 100% of the output. So the output where it was measured, and it, it, just to be clear, it wasn't necessarily always measured in terms of the Irish companies that participated in the trial, but the results were positive. But they were they um, they were being paid 100% of of their salary for 80% of the time. So that traditionally would look like you know, a Friday off or whatever in a week, but there were different variations of it as well. The important thing for us was that there was a significant reduction in working time in a given week. Okay, well, I I suppose uh, the response from the employers tells its own story because the employers wouldn't be very happy if they were paying 100% but only getting 80% of the output. But the vast majority of them were very happy during this trial. Yeah, and on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the most positive, the companies that participated in the trial rated it as a 9.2 out of 10. And I think probably more so than anything else that that uh, we could talk about in terms of what's in the report, that, that figure stands out. But m- more so even than that, pardon me, is that none of the companies that participated in the trial are going back to a five-day week. Right. And this, this was part of a global trial. Uh, um, so there was co- um, companies from countries across the world participating in it, and none of those companies are going back either. Okay. So I think much more than anything else, that makes a very clear statement about the positive nature of this for all stakeholders that are involved. Right. Uh, I take it uh, one of the reasons for that is uh, their employees are happy and happy employees are productive employees. Yeah, that's absolutely it. And like, if you look at some of the uh, figures that are there in terms of uh, the impact on employees, they were sleeping more often, they were spending more time on hobbies, they reported that they were happier in general. Women in particular um, were reported significantly greater improvement in life satisfaction at lar- and they had larger gains in sleep time overall reported being feeling more secure in your employment. So when you're not concerned, I suppose, about a lack of sleep or the security of your employment or, or, or whatever else, um, I think that obviously, you know, it, that does provide for a situation where maybe you're maybe you're obviously happier in your workplace as well and that has follow-on effects that um, employees and employers like to see. Okay, and I take it there's savings for the employers as well, light, heat, insurance uh, and so on. There is an element of that, just but we didn't measure that mm. in every company that, that participated in the trial, and they didn't measure it. But for the companies that did, there was a positive, uh, there was positive results in that respect as well. Okay, I, I take it some employers, maybe not the ones in your trial, but some employers might be uh, listening to this and saying, "Well, if they were doing five days work in four days, does that mean they were unproductive by twenty percent when they were working the full five days?" I think probably the, the the investigation we should be looking at is 
the, is the fact that the way that we had set up work in terms of this always-on presenteeism-style culture actually isn't the most productive way uh, for people to work. And we would have seen significant improvements in terms of productivity for, comp- for people who moved from a six to a five-day week a number of years ago. Um, and this is obviously a, fo- a follow-on from that. I think it's what, we're, what we need to look at here is challenge received wisdom in terms of what a productive worker looks like or a productive employment looks like uh, and implement policies like the four-day week that actually ultimately end up benefiting not only the employee who is working there, but the employer who employs them as well. Okay. Is there a risk of reduced salaries? Not under our model. So we, we promote, uh, and there's a couple of different iterations, I guess, of the four-day week that are out there. But we're, we operate on a 180-100 model. So you, you get 100% of your pay for 80% of the time uh, and, and 100% of the output. So there is no reduction in salary uh, for the people who participate in this trial or for the four-day week that we advocate for in general. Okay. Uh, I take it it took a, a little while for people to get their head around this uh, on both sides, uh, the employers and the employees. How long did this trial run for? So there was a couple of trials. The first started on the 1st of February this year and the second started in April and they ran for a period of six months. So they're both concluded now. There are a number of other trials taking place and scheduled. Mm. We, off, we we partner with the 40 Week Global Campaign who are looking at this work you know, in Australia, New Zealand, Canada um, and America. And so there, there's trials build to take place in 2023 as well so this is an ongoing process and like we are of the view that as you say it can take time for people to get their heads around it the trials are a great opportunity to test out what it would look like to find the challenges that you didn't perceive uh, and to kind of work around them but I suppose and the the takeaway that I kind of mentioned maybe at the start is that none of the companies that have participated in this trial were going back to the way they were doing things Okay tell me this uh, Kevin Uh, what impact does it have on holidays or or sick days or social welfare entitlements? So there's um, in terms of this report, it doesn't necessarily um, investigate all of those kind of aspects. I think individual workplaces need to examine how they would implement it. So, like, for example, some workplaces would identify that they waste quite a lot of time in meetings that are not necessary, and they examine it that way. Then they have follow-on conversations about, you know, as I mentioned, it looks like a Friday off for a lot of companies. That's not workable in every scenario, and so the reduced working time might be uh, overlaid um, over different days, uh, or it might come in different forms. So those kinds of investigations um, mm. um, will take place on, I suppose, a company, company by company basis. But where there is research around um, around sick days and stuff like that, people tend to uh, present for work sick less often uh, okay. as a result of this. Okay. Very good. Very interesting, Kevin. Uh, very interesting, too, to see uh, somebody believes, uh, this is uh, Mary and Dunlear believes that I should be on a four-day week, if not a one-day week. <laughs> but, oh, I, I believe Mary should be on a four-day week as well. <laughs> All right, Kevin. Coming soon. Thank you very much, Kevin Dunhu, the chair of the Four-Day Week Ireland Group. That's our programme for today. Maggie Maguire Research. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael Godwilling. We'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 87 Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save 